Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This episode is part of the Global Heart Failure Academy and is brought to you by Medtelligence. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. In the treatment of our patients with heart failure, RASI therapy, especially the use of MRAs, is often delayed despite being a crucial part of medical therapy. Whether due to misplaced caution or clinical inertia, the evidence is clear that the suboptimal use of these therapies leads to poorer outcomes for our patients. So how can we approach this clinical stigma surrounding the use of MRAs and what strategies can we employ to better ensure the very best medical therapy possibly for our patients with heart failure. This is CME on ReachMD, and I am Dr. Ileana Pina, and with me is Dr. Patrick Rosignol, a wonderful friend from the University of Nancy in France. Patrick, welcome. Thank you very much, and I'm very pleased to meet you today. Let's talk about these things. You and I have had these conversations before, so let's use a patient case that unfortunately we see more often than we would like to. So let's say we have a 62-year-old woman with a history of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, so a HEFREF, 36% ejection fraction, and CKD, the GFR of 37, so this is in your camp, three weeks after a hospitalization for an acute exacerbation of heart failure, she comes to your clinic for follow-up. Currently on furosemide, lisinopril, carvedilol, and atorvastatin. Vitals are stable, but her serum potassium is 5 milliequivalents per liter. What do you see as one of the main issues in the medical management of this patient, and what factors contributes to this? First of all, one may notice that this patient is neither receiving an HLT2 inhibitor nor an MRA, while both drugs are universally graded with a 1A. Actually, such recommendations are obviously more recent for HLT2 inhibitors. Concerning MRAs, registry data repeatedly showed that suboptimal and underuse of MRAs are associated with worse outcomes. Your orders toward MRA use encompass hyperkalemia, worsening renal function, and CKD, while our patient is indeed presenting with CKD but serum potassium does not meet an hyperkalemia definition. However, many physicians could be reluctant to initiate an MRA owing to the risk of developing hyperkalemia in this CKD setting. Strikingly, a recent analysis from the Gate with the Guideline Registry published 2021 in JAK by Patel observes that evidence-based medical therapies, including those without EGFR restrictions, were suboptimally used in patients with comorbid FREF and CKD, even at levels of EGFR where such therapies would not be contraindicated by kidney dysfunction. Furthermore, there was a marked decrease in prescription rates of triple therapy associated with low EGFR categories. Patel rightly concluded, risk treatment paradox exists in the management of patients with FREF and comorbid kidney disease, such that patients with the highest mortality actually treated with lesser disease-modifying medical therapies. 
So these are really important points, and I like hearing that a potassium of 5 is really to you, certainly not hyperkalemia, but it would be for a lot of physicians. So I think your points are extremely well taken. Now, what evidence-based approach should we use in rechallenging RASI therapy? Let's say that this patient gets her lisinopril, for example, taken away because the potassium is fine. What do we know about the data? of re-challenging a patient. And just because the potassium has been higher at one point, does that mean it's going to be forever? We should keep in mind that dynamic management was implemented in the major trials such as RARS, Ephesus, and Emphasis HF. In other words, the study drug could be temporarily discontinued in case of hyperkalemia and resumed to the highest tolerated dose as soon as the potassium got back to the normal. The latest 2022 AHA-ACC HFSC guidelines acknowledge that the development of worsening renal function or hyperkalemia is often a reflection of acute clinical change or progressive disease, prompting careful evaluation of the anti-medical regimen on other causes of hyperkalemia in addition to holding the MRA. Furthermore, the ESC heart failure guidelines propose practical guidance with quasi-algorithmic tables on the use of MRAs in patients with heart failure with reducing fraction as a function of potassium and EGFR in order to get the highest tolerated doses to the patients. Obviously, a thorough seropotassium monitoring is indeed warranted in patients who are treated with an MRA. And the ESC heart failure guidelines recommend to check blood chemistry at one on four weeks after starting, increasing dose on at eight, on 12 weeks, six, nine, on 12 months, four months thereafter. Second, a close potassium monitoring is especially warranted under potassium lowering agents. For those just tuning in, you're listening to CME on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Ileana Pina, and here with me today is Dr. Patrick Rosignol. We are discussing the challenges surrounding the use of MRAs and effective strategies to ensure the best medical therapy for all our patients with heart failure. I love that last comment because for the first time we are actually seeing in the guidelines some recommendations about using the potassium lowering agents that we have available. I think it's also important for the clinicians to hear that they need to ask the patient if they're taking potassium salts. Because with heart failure, we often say to the patients, you have to cut down your salt intake. You have to cut down your sodium. And what do they do? They go buy salt substitute, which is in fact potassium salts. So that's a very important question to ask the patient, which they may not think of telling you because they may not realize that that salt substitute is in fact potassium salts. And we know that lowering potassium in foods doesn't always work, but I do go through the exercise of saying to patients there are foods that are very high in potassium and we have in our own patient education booklet a whole page of listing of foods that are high in potassium things like orange juice even strawberries that have a lot of potassium so i think the better educated the patient is the better they can handle it what do you think patrick with what we now have in the guidelines and the potential for potassium binders that would actually support or even the word enable the ability to get these drugs on the patients 
Yeah, you're totally right, Eliana. Indeed, the latest 221 ESC Artfeller guidelines stated that the administration of the caloring agent spratiomer or sodium citriconium cyclosilicate may allow renin angiotensin aldosterone system inhibitor initiation or up titration in a larger proportion of patients. Furthermore, the latest 222 heart failure guidelines, the US guidelines, acknowledge that in patients with heart failure who experience hyperkalemia, in other words, serum potassium level above 0.5 millimole per liter, while taking renin angiotensin aldosterone system inhibitor, the effectiveness of potassium binders to improve outcomes by facilitating continuation of fresh therapy is uncertain and was therefore graded with a 2B BR. In this setting, importantly, the Diamond trial data just presented at the SCC meeting showed that in FREF patients, either hyperkalemic or prone to experience hyperkalemia owing to a history of hyperkalemia leading to RACI reduction or discontinuation, optimal RACI therapy was enabled in 85% of the patients during the running phase, while all patients were treated with pratiomer. Subsequently, during the double-blind randomized placebo withdrawal phase, pratiomer use simultaneously reduced the risk of recurrent hyperkalemia and enabled guideline-recommended RACI use. In our patient case, an MRA was indeed initiated at low doses, but a mild hyperkalemia occurred, which was successfully treated with pratiomer, while MRA could be subsequently titrated to the target dose. Yeah, this is a great case. I see these patients all the time and they come in and the MRA is not on board. And what I would have done with this woman started her on spironolactone, perhaps even a 12.5, depending upon how quickly she can come back to get her labs drawn or does she get her labs drawn in an outside laboratory. And I would start the SGLT2s then too, because we do have some data that when the SGLT2 inhibitors are started, the potassium may actually drop some. And so we may be able to stay on it for a longer period of time. But I am very happy that the guidelines for the first time really talk about this as using it as an enabler to get the patients on the right drugs, because that's really what we want. So it's been a great conversation with you, Patrick. But before we wrap up, give me one good take-home message for the clinical audience that's with us today. Sure. Guideline recommended therapy, best practices, including a proper biological monitoring, should be definitively implemented in our patients with heart failure. So then my final take-home message is really do whatever you can do to get the patients on the right drugs. Because now we know that withdrawing the RASI therapy is actually not beneficial and that there are curves that we have very clearly showing that the patients who get discontinued are as bad as the patients who are never started. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. So I want to thank our audience for listening in and thank you, Dr. Rossignol, for joining me and for sharing all of your valuable insights. As usual, it was great speaking with you today. Thank you so much, Eliana. You're very welcome. You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Medtelligence. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash heart failure. Thank you for listening.